everyone. Welcome to Brainsplain. I'm your host, Caitlin Merrick, and today joining me is the founder and CEO of NeuroInsight US, Pranav Yadav, and senior analyst at NeuroInsight US, Anouk Gaday. Thank you guys so much for hopping on, and I'm super excited to learn from two brilliant people. Thank you for having us. All right. So just to kind of jump into it, first, I would like to hear a little bit about both of you, maybe some background stuff, why you got into the work that you do, and, you know, just the path that you took to get there. Sure. So, um, like you said, I'm a senior analyst at NeuroInsight, and I lead creative communication projects with some of our biggest clients. Um, and I've also led a couple of rebranding projects. My background is uh, Lebanese, and I grew up between France and the U.S. And that like mix of cultures actually made me aware at a really young age that human expression varies remarkably by, by culture, and that what people say and do are very different. And understanding human behavior like you um, and what impacts it has always fascinated me. So I decided to pursue that passion by studying neuroscience in college. Um, and while I was in college, I you know, started looking into different things like neuromarketing, which I had no idea existed until I started studying neuroscience. Um, and I found out about NeuroInsight and I um, reached out to Pranav several times because I, you know, figured out that NeuroInsight was a leader in the field. Um, and I finally was able to get this opportunity to um, work at NeuroInsight and have been there since. And um, I'm, you know, have been really excited about being able to live this dream and work at such an amazing company. Part of uh, why I do what I do is for people like Anouk and Caitlin to uh, to be to hear from you and and see that you can actually do the things that you want to do because otherwise there wouldn't be any company companies around for you to work at. So my background is that um, I have a science background. I triple majored in math, physics, and economics in college. Uh, to the relevant audiences that you may have, I went on to then um, work at Goldman Sachs as a structured equity derivatives trader. Uh, in 2006 and 2007, those were the things to do. Um, it was during my time there that I realized that I, you know, want other things from life and want to uh, pursue uh, things that allow me to understand people better. Growing up, I had a theater background. So uh, the idea that you can really influence behavior by authenticity of emotion or authenticity of a message uh, and delivery uh, was something that I grew up with. So it, my next move was to work for an innovation strategy consulting firm uh, called Red Associates, based out of Denmark originally, but I was one of the first hires in the New York office. Um, and we used social scientific means to decode human behavior. So my first project was uh, to go to India and understand why, despite it being 120 degrees in the summer, Indians don't buy air conditioners. My second project was to go to Copenhagen and look at, use data for the first time in the history uh, to look at data from 100 plus cities for the past 50 years and try to understand why cities have failed in the past and how do we uh, use this understanding uh, to design a city for the future. Uh, my next project was to go to Vegas and understand why people gamble. Uh, so all very interesting things to solve for. And what it led to was an understanding that 
despite people being willing to talk about their feelings, uh, they don't seem to have the tools to be able to express them. Um, moreover, it's not just the feelings. The truth is that 90% of decision-making takes place in the subconscious. And by definition of the subconscious, you don't have access to it. So sure, you know, some very skilled uh, qualitative researchers can really get to the bottoms of the drivers of human motivation. But if we actually have to do that at scale, we have to look, dig deeper. Um, and I was around 24, 25 years old when I was introduced to Dr. Richard Silverstein, who uh, was the Dean of Neuroscience in Australia and had invented um, uh, a technology uh, that was very unique and correlated with predicting future consumer behavior. And we got in touch and then long story short, he, uh, he him and I decided that uh, there should be a bigger presence of the company globally. And I went on to become the CEO of the US company. So I started the company in the US in 2010 and can proudly say that it's the largest neuromarketing company in the world right now. That's really awesome. It's such a cool story. So something that, that I've been thinking about, a lot of people say the typical path for somebody who's studying neuroscience is like, okay, go do research or go to med school. But I mean, we're all good examples of coming from different backgrounds. Like you don't have to follow that typical path. What do you think that we can do about getting people to think more creatively about how they can apply their knowledge in different places? Well, the number one thing is to understand what creativity is. What do you think is creativity to you? Creativity. If I, if I had to break it down, I really think it, it just comes down to, you know, thinking outside the box, like just not not molding to the norms just always being confident enough to go do your own thing think outside the box and not just fit to everyone what everyone else is doing love it i think that's a good start but the inherent bias in your question is that you think there is a path and in your answer you think there is a box and both of these things tell you uh that the existence of the of the box, or even uh, uh, you know the feeling that that is a path, uh, is the exact opposite of creativity. Uh, creativity, by definition, uh, is different data sets in your brain being connected by the power of your mind uh, and coming together in ways that may not have been obvious to you or someone else. So that is creativity. And if you want to be creative in any field, uh, like I think an accountant can be creative. I don't think the field itself is creative or uncreative. Um, it is the person who is creative or not creative. It is true that certain fields give you more leeway uh, to be more creative or for more creative expression and others less so. Um, but at the same time, it actually really depends on the individual. Now, one of the things is, is training, right? If as you were growing up, your parents uh, or your teachers or your society or the general makeup of how, where you grew up uh, promoted the idea for you to connect these different data points, encouraged it, celebrated it, um, they would have curated a system where everybody is a certain level of creative. 
Yet at the same time, the, those things don't happen very often. The second element is actually those data sets existing. So which means knowledge accumulation, um, that you need to actually have an understanding of how different things in the world work, how different disciplines work, um, and have an understanding of uh, you know a certain level of depth in every discipline. I meet people every day who, um, you know, we, we walk to the water during COVID in New York City, purely because it seems like an escape. And you see this massive ship floating on water. And oftentimes, like someone's, you know, kind of claimed right next to me is like, isn't it fascinating how these huge metal things float on water? And I'm like, well, it is fascinating, but I will tell you exactly how. And their minds are blown uh, that the weight of the water displaced is exactly the amount of weight it can support. Or, you know, like basic things of buoyancy that you study in seventh or eighth grade physics. But because the world has told these people that it is okay for them to specialize in one field and actually be completely ignorant towards our everyday life things. And I don't think, uh, you know, those people, okay, I, I'm from the, the Renaissance period school of creativity where I feel like if you have multiple interests, if you uh, force yourself to learn about multiple things, it actually feeds into, it's the same guy who's painting remarkable things, who's coming up with the airplane designs. And it happens, it has happened in the past and it happens today. Yeah, my creativity, I feel like stems from my curiosity. Like I'm never gonna turn down learning something. Some people are just like, oh, you know, like I'm a psych major. So if I never have to take a history class, I'm not going to. Whereas for me, I, I felt like, you know, my freshman year, I took every intro course I could. Cause I was like, I don't know. You never know what you're gonna learn, what you're gonna like. And I'm just curious to find out more about all that stuff because in, in some way it's all gonna come back together, tie back together. and. I think, you know, like you said, that those those connections in our brain and that's what sparks that creativity is having the knowledge from many different areas, for sure. I That's the, the biggest reason I came to America. Um, this was the only place in the world where liberal arts education existed uh, and was celebrated. Um, and I, you know, while I may have, you know, majored in math, physics and economics, uh, things that other people otherwise would expect me to do, uh, just the idea that I existed in a system where I could do a variety of things, could have a variety of, uh, you know, uh, experiences and within the physics and the mathematics classes could question things in the way uh, that I was able to was remarkable. And I, I, I feel sorry that today, um, you know, that is often overlooked and the value is not understood. And um, I will tell you that you know, outside of the remarkable, some of the remarkable people that I get to work with, like Anouk, um, that's a problem I see with uh, most people I interview to come into our companies. They, they, they've forgotten uh, uh, that, that thing that made a lot of things here great. Yeah, definitely. Um, something that I'm curious about, kind of just staying on this creativity line, is how do both of you use that? Like, how do you combine the science aspect and the creative aspect and, and put that together within your company? So in terms of what I do on a daily basis, it's, I mean, part of why I love Neuroinsight is because everything we do really combines both the scientific and the creative. But like, Pranav said it's on different levels like you can be an accountant and still be creative if you want 
the way that I do it in my daily job is really by, um, for example, if we're um, collecting data on an ad that we want to test and analyze, when I'm analyzing it, I'm taking in consideration all the different creative elements within the ad to help our clients optimize um, any type of content that they have. And in other ways, I also use my creativity to sort of problem solve whenever we do come across problems. So if we're trying to um, like create a study and we're building a design and we come across issues that we don't know how to fix, I try to use my creativity to sort of get to the best possible solution for our clients. Does that make sense? So here, here, here's a clear example for you, right? Um, I, I, I guess you've seen some of our work, right? You can, one of the deliverables of our work is a second by second analysis of how your brain responds to something along five different metrics, whether it's long-term memory, personal relevance, emotional intensity, visual uh, attention or approach or withdrawal, right? Now, you, see the response to an ad and you see hmm the ad was pretty decent but i saw that as the ad came to an end i see a huge dip in memory encoding and you try to come up with a few hypotheses but nothing really you know you don't have enough data to to do anything and then you go through the next study and you see a similar impact, but now it's a little before the end of the ad. And you're like, hmm, what is common between this and the last thing? This is much like the scientific method, but I also don't think that the, any scientific method exists without creativity. And I'll talk more about that in a second. And then that makes you think, hmm, the first ad had a red screen come take over the entire piece of creative maybe that signals to the brain that the ad is coming to the end and maybe i stop processing uh, any of the data that comes forward because i've told them through a sign that the story is coming to an end so then i use that hypothesis and go to the next ad where i saw that this happened a little earlier in the ad but as i'm listening to the audio i realized that the song had reached its crescendo uh, and I had given them an audio hint that the ad was coming to an end. Great, you have two data points, but obviously no scientific method exists on two data points. So you start looking and for the same effect over and over again in different ads. You get first, you get to 30, and you see if that effect is robust or not. Then you actually test hundreds of ads. And then you realize all of these signals actually can come in a variety of ways. It could be two old white men standing up and shaking hands at the end of an insurance ad. It could be a car driving away into a horizon. All of these are ways we have told stories for the past 40 years in the world of advertising. And people are so used to seeing them that the moment they come on screen, people switch off their brains and they feel like the story is coming to an end. So then as we study this effect robustly, we actually give it a name called conceptual closure. And this is now peer reviewed and published in some of the most respectable scientific journals in the world. But we wouldn't have been able to come to this effect if we weren't creative about what we were seeing. So, like I said, you know, every field in itself is not creative. Like there, there are several other neuromarketing co companies uh, that exist. Um, while, I mean, you know, we would like to claim that their tools are more blunt than ours because we developed a very sophisticated tool. 
But at the same time, I don't see anybody coming close to studying this kind of an effect. And this is where we take a lot of pride because when you combine scientific rigor with your curiosity and creativity, really amazing things surface. And, you know, we take a lot of pride in doing that. That is something, you know, just through some of the work that you've done that I've seen, whether it be LinkedIn or through research and stuff, I, I definitely see that. I feel like that's what really like intrigued me because, you know, even with some of the other neuromarketing stuff I looked at, you know, it's it's not as creative as that. That's the best way to put it. It's like, okay, so this neuromarketing book talks about what colors spark what emotions in the brain and where can we use it best? And it's like, yeah, great. That's really interesting. That's cool. But Th- those like deeper, more creative thoughts, I feel like are what really make the difference, you know? Yeah. And so the truth is, you know, you know like in, in like uh, a lot of these heist movies, you'd always get a cop who knows how to think like a thief to catch the thief, right? So we are in the field of measuring and evaluating and optimizing creativity. And if, the, the cre- if creativity doesn't pervade through our organization, we do not have the skill set to be able to do that for other people. Um, and I think like outside of the field of neuromarketing, generally in the field of research in this industry, a marketing-based research, that creativity is completely lacking. And therefore, I think the entire field of marketing research has been highly ineffective. Um, you know, billions of dollars are spent on advertising every year. And the most sophisticated uh, CMOs in the world will tell you that most of the return that I get on my dollars comes from 20% of the advertising and 80% of it goes to waste. And no matter what kind of tools they use, they've actually not been able to move that number. What does that say about the existing research tools that we have and the people who are doing that research? Yeah, exactly. And it honestly was so surprising to me once I like started to want to combine the neuro and like the business aspect it was so surprising to me to really find out that so many sales companies or or places like that they don't use any type of human data behavioral data and that just like blows my mind i just i don't know i don't understand like that you're that's who you're targeting like how do you not want to use that data i'll tell you um do your parents use tiktok they don't right no even though it's pretty amazing right (laughs) why do you think that is I guess they're just, I don't know, they're older. They're not with that kind of technology. Correct. Uh, Essentially, it's inertia, right? Like people who have done things a certain way for a long time find it very hard. You know, I I mean, now that we spoke about your parents, I shouldn't use this saying that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. But it's the saying is that you... uh, you can't, you know, it's, it's harder because, I mean, you study neuroscience, you understand neuroplasticity. There's a way to actually keep your plasticity alive. And I think people do that particularly well. Um, some of them do, but, uh, but most people have a hard time adapting to new things. So this is a generation of business people, even people in the creative field who grew up with a certain kind of understanding of the world and a certain kind of toolkit. Um, And for us to go in and even despite giving them the most robust evidence uh, that we correlate to actual human behavior, it is very hard to get them to move. They will ask us questions in such details that they've never asked of their existing tools or technologies, which they continue to waste 
hundreds of millions of dollars of their company and 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 you know uh, their uh, their shareholders money on uh, because that is how things were done in the past but to actively make a change is a hard thing not just for them but also for you and me we are also human so the point is um, that as we uh, you know educate the next generation as more people like you enter the workforce with this new understanding uh, then hopefully uh, the change will be bigger i think it's inevitable because the evidence is there there for everybody to see uh, though uh, change always takes time um, and uh, you know i earlier when i was mentioning science and creativity and the combination i love using the example of einstein because if he weren't creative he wouldn't have imagined uh, the the space time concept and then he it was it first started with his imagination of the concept and then he found the evidence and the mathematics to support it so creativity and science are interlinked uh, in ways that people otherwise don't realize or actually refuse to accept or acknowledge though they are completely interlinked um, and it's the same thing here like you know if if someone in 1905 who came from the newtonian school of classical mechanics um heard einstein's theory they would have called him crazy and, and actually there are some today who still uh, think that he was a little crazy but the truth is now the evidence is there for everybody to see and much like this field um right now there are people who are like wow you're mapping people's brains that's cool but that's the extent of their interest Uh, but the next generation will actually take it to the next step and apply it in every day. So something that just made me think of something. Um, I feel like a lot of times people who don't really understand this field, this area at all, when they're like, "Oh, what do you want to do?" and I say neuromarketing, they're like, "So mind control." And a lot of people always just think it's like ethically not right. Sometimes I don't know how to respond because I don't see it that way but I also don't know how to tell them that that's not what it is. So I'm curious to hear what you guys have to say about that. Well, my response to that is that if I could control people's minds, we wouldn't have the coronavirus situation the way it is. We wouldn't have had the president the kind of president uh, that we do have. um and the, the society would not be so material driven that it is um the truth is i don't think there is a mind control tool in the world uh surveys were built to do what to gain knowledge on how people think about something and that's precisely what we do we gauge how people respond to something we cannot read people's minds we're only gauging their response to a stimulus much like people were trying to do with surveys and focus groups the fact that surveys and focus groups were so terrible at it um is a different story altogether but the aspiration was similar and in fact i would say that 80 to 90% of people in the insights industry actually believe that it's telling them the truth so how is that any different from you know trying to get a reaction to something by mapping people's brains so that's my answer to that i i wish i could control people's minds but i cannot and nobody can <laughs> yeah no oh go ahead go ahead sorry i was just going to say like to add to that it's that's a question that i get absolutely all the time because most people i know have no idea what neuromarketing is and i'm actually currently in france and um mapping people's brain for commercial reasons is actually illegal in this country so <laughs> um it comes up a lot and what i usually tell people is that we can't 
control what people think. Even if we're changing something in an ad to optimize it, it's more to give people direction. It's not, we're not forcing them to do anything. Their desires and their needs and wants are going to be based on them and nothing else. And we're just sort of gearing them into the right direction or the right product. So that's usually what I'd say. And lastly, if anything, if anything, we would be doing a favor uh, and helping this industry fix the terrible uh, practice that they have created of uh, trying to sell products without trying to uh, find what people's true needs are. Um, and history has shown us that the best way to communicate with people is by trying to understand what the, their deepest needs and motivations are and then tell stories around it. And sure, if your product plays a part in that story that resonates with people, people will automatically choose it. And that's our mission, is to understand and decode the deepest drivers of human motivation so we can help serve stories that make people happier, uh, more cheerful, less materialistic, uh, you know, makes them look deeper into themselves, uh, understand themselves better, uh, drive a feeling of community. Um, and we can find those stories and we can tell those stories. And while selling our product, we understand that we live in a commercial world and companies need to sell their products. That is not a bad thing. The reason that to spend billions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars to create a Super Bowl ad that is meaningless to society, uh, that uh, I, I condemn. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another thing that I'm thinking about too, as we're talking about just some of this stuff and also going back to how people don't really like change and sometimes it's difficult. What were some of the challenges that you faced internally or externally with starting this company with branching it out to the US and facing all of that stuff and people being resistant to change? Well, we're still facing it. Let's not, you know, uh, get ahead of ourselves. I think uh, we are very small uh, compared to, you know, where, how big we should be. Um, that said, we are lucky to have broken a few barriers and have entered uh, into a situation where some very uh, forward-looking leaders of the industry have you know, backed us and seen our work and, uh, and, and come to understand that this is, this is the future. So while we have been able to make that happen and we're lucky uh, that such people exist and, and we rely on them heavily to, to you know, to, to take this forward. But the barrier is real. I, I, when I started the company and, uh, you know, we, during our team meeting this morning, uh, were recounting one of the stories from 2010 when I first started the company because I was the only person at the company at that time. Um, and sitting in my tiny uh, apartment in New York City uh, was a one-man shop, writing proposals, doing sales calls, um, going in and pitching, um, uh, executing the study, writing the report, uh, writing papers, and then presenting it out to the market with clients. Like, I did it all. Um, and um, I'm, I still am willing to do it all. If, if we find uh, a client who truly is interested in, in uncovering the deepest drivers of human motivation. But the truth is that I have never walked out of a meeting when people are not fascinated by the work that we do. Yet at the same time, 
less than 1% of those people convert into becoming clients. Sometimes you actually find people who want to work with us too, but it's very hard for them to be in the construct of the organization uh, and convince the rest of the parties who may come from different schools of thoughts. Someone may have worked at a, a, a Nielsen in the past that basically taught them this, doing surveys is the only way to do it. Um, and they want to, that's the only measurement they understand and they refuse to budge. Or someone knows a friend in another company and that's how they want to work. Not that, not that it should any, you know, be that like that for anybody, but it happens. So we've hit any, every, any and every kind of barrier that uh, one can hit because change is hard. But the point uh, is that if we were doing it uh, for any other reason, but to bring forward the human truth, we would have actually shut shop a long time ago. Um, and because that reason hasn't changed, we're still doing it for the same reason. We continue to break those barriers and open more doors. And you know, sooner rather than later, you hit the critical mass, much like any revolution. Um, and, uh, and then you, know, you look at history and we're like, wow, that wasn't so bad, was it? Yeah, yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And I feel like some of the stuff that you're saying too really ties into just that genuine component. And that also takes away from the argument where people might try to call this unethical. It's like all you're doing are bringing those truths forward, being genuine with it. And, you know, a lot of people too, like the the whole advertising around empathy during this corona thing has been crazy. Like there's such an emphasis on that now. And I feel like every time I see something like that, it's like, you should have been doing this the whole time. Like people know it's fake now. You didn't do it before. And now all of a sudden you care so much about everybody. Well, on top of that, I don't know if you've seen the review. There's, an, there's this thing on, um, I don't know who actually originally did the comparison, but they took about 20 different uh, ads during this time. And they cut them section by section, um, starting off with a shot of the sunrise or the sunset and silence and we're in this together and in these unusual times or in this unpredictable times or in these difficult times or in these whatever times, you know, everybody uses the same kind of language, the same kind of narrator with uh, a deep voice when it's male or a certain kind of feminine voice, strong feminine voice, because they feel that they can use these tricks um, during this time to boost their sales. But the truth is, that they have exposed themselves completely because this is nothing but you know pretending to have empathy and every if everybody came up with the same thing at the end of the day it shows you that they had none of it to begin with yeah exactly and it like you said it's it's so easy to see right through that and people think that it was helping them and it like you said it's probably only hurting them it's exposing them um I'm curious also just kind of on the same topic what have you guys done like during this whole situation what like I saw a couple different posts and stuff about um consumer behavior thoughts and everything throughout COVID and I'm just I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that. Anouk do you want to talk about the COVID tracker a little bit? Um sure um so we uh worked on a like Pranav said a COVID tracker so we actually tracked um, like how people's behavior changed over the first couple weeks of um, quarantine. And um, we did, I think we did probably one study a week or something like that, or maybe more. Um, and we actually saw quite a few differences in how people were reacting to things like 
movie theaters or, um, you know, just purchasing things in general, shopping or groceries or, um, I don't, we had like, I don't know, almost 20 categories at the end of it. So it was really interesting. We actually saw like people started shopping a lot at first for clothes and then it kind of dropped and then went back up. And now we're actually seeing in market at least that people aren't buying enough or aren't buying clothes enough. And a lot of shops are even empty even now that they're closed. So it was really interesting. Yeah. So, you know, we, we created a model for basic human needs. Um, and it's not a hierarchy like Maslow's uh, because we don't believe that you need to have gone through all of these steps to get to self-actualization. Uh, there's enough evidence in the world that a person on the street still is looking for meaning. Um, that said, we created this model uh, for five basic human needs that involves things like sustenance, like creative expression, like the need for community, the need for identity. Um, and as people spent more time in isolation, you saw one or more of these needs surface and their actions in the market were correlating to these needs not being met. Now, funny thing was, ours is a subconscious tracker and was published every week or every two weeks. And turns out that we were actually on the, on the forward curve of the trends. So we would put things out like in week number one, for example, uh, sustenance, the need uh, dominated. Um, and uh, what we saw was grocery store sales just soar, right? People were just stocking up, obviously. And this is, uh, everybody knows this. Second week, we saw that people were panicking around not seeing their family or friends. Uh, so the need for community uh, came to the forefront and we saw video conferences just, just go through the roof. Like for the first time, people were having drinks over Zoom and whatnot. And then during the third week, um, we started looking at like, people are still finding it very hard to express their identity or have a need for, or, or like showcase, have a place to showcase their creative expression. And then we saw that the correlation, the subconscious correlation with the apparel category went up. So we published that, even though we, we were seeing that the sales in the apparel category were not up. So it was kind of a risk that we took to put that report out into the market, but the data was the data. We had to stay true to it. Within the next two days, we heard from three of our apparel partners saying, how the hell did you guys know that this was going to go up? We're like, we just saw it in the data. People have a need for creative expression and identity. And even though they know that they're not going to wear these clothes for a while, they were finding ways to do that. And they did that through your, you know, your e-com store. So um, just, you know, these were things we were doing during COVID is just basically following or tracking consumer uh, uh, sentiment and informing some of our top clients on how they could be using this information to serve people better. We published an entire report on encouraging brands to let go of their th in the box thinking, which was around like, oh, if I am an alcohol company, uh, let me do what LVMH did and retrofit my factories to produce hand sanitizer. And then all of them did that. And no one can undermine that effect. Like that was a nice thing to do. It's an expensive thing to do. But at the same time, once that was done, now what? People had enough sanitizer. So, but they have all of these other needs that were unmet. Um, people were afraid of going to the grocery stores. People were 
queuing up and making lines and actually putting them towards risk. Why didn't any of these companies come up with an app for every neighborhood uh, where people could coordinate and have a distribution for times that they could go to the grocery stores? In fact, why couldn't these companies come up with a system where younger folk like all three of us could essentially volunteer and take on uh, you know, an older couple or an older person so that they need not go outside? Like all of us were willing to do that. There was just no platform to do that. But if a company unrelated to technology, otherwise invested in a, a company that makes apps sitting in say Ukraine or you know, in other parts of America, we could have created solutions uh, together. Um, and that would have gone a long way, uh, even if you were unrelated company to have gained the trust of people that you are here to serve them. Uh, and nobody did that. Um, and I found that to be very disappointing. I can, we continued to encourage brands to do that, but, um, but, but they didn't. Uh, but these were some of the things we did during COVID. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I definitely agree with you that would have made a big impact. And I don't know, it's frustrating that people weren't willing to, to do stuff like that. Yeah, well, um, you, you, it is frustrating, but I would encourage you and everybody who's listening to your podcast to turn your frustration into action, because I think uh, a lot of what uh, we have done recently all over the world and not just in America is the youth is where change comes from. It always has been that way. And if you are frustrated and you think the society needs to change for the better, then you live and breathe those principles. And don't then at the very next uh, uh, step of someone throwing uh, a big uh, starting salary package in an evil gigantic tech corporation, jump on that ship after having criticized them for four years during college uh, is my recommendation. Though it's a hard one to follow. I went to Goldman Sachs myself uh, right after college. So I'm not trying to you know, be preachy, but the moment I learned that I could do more, I did. Uh, and that's the the one thing I encourage, uh, you know, all the young listeners to do. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And it, I mean, like you said, it's very easy to just follow that path and do what you're supposed to do with, I say that with quotes, but um, yeah, I, I mean, I think, like I said before, just being curious and, and not settling, I think is, is key. And I'm I'm excited to see what where I can go with everything just because like I said I, I'm curious about so many different things and I just I can't wait to see how it all comes together. And as long as your intent is uh, real and your effort is genuine, I will personally guarantee that you will find yourself in a place that makes you happy. Uh, you know the there's enough. Uh, work in the world for you to add value to as an individual and there are enough people in the world who want to actually compensate you for good work so i i i i really want people to know that um it is not a binary thing it is not that you sell your soul and only then you can make money or that you do certain things to satisfy uh, your soul and then you'll die as a hungry artist it's not a binary thing at all. You can strike a balance and I think everybody should try to do that. Absolutely. That, yeah, 
That definitely resonates because I, it, it, everybody always acts like, you know, if you don't follow that traditional path and you're just going to do what you love, it's like, well, you know, you're going to settle and not make enough money or whatever. And it's like, I, you can make whatever you want to make out of it. You know, if you, like you said, if you are genuine and you really want to do something with it, you always can. 100%. Um, so I, I could have like a million more questions for the both of you, but I want to be mindful of your time. I know I already kept you a little late. So um, I want to say thank you guys so much again for joining me today. And for anybody who ends up listening to this episode who wants to look further into maybe NeuroInsight or either of the work that you guys do, where can they find you? Well, um, you can send an email to ny at neuroinsight.com. Uh, that email filters into our office and we all get to read those emails. So you're welcome to shoot us, an e shoot us a note and we can take it from there. All right. Well, thank you so much again and have a great rest of your day. You too. Good luck with thank everything. You. Thank you. Thank you.